Welcome to Sarah's Century, a 12-episode podcast which explores how revolution, war, and immigration affected a single individual. 99-year-old Sarah Mebel left Russia forever on September 11, 2001. This is the story of her life. Episode 9, At the War's End. We left Sarah and Gita living as wartime evacuees in their shared room in the Siberian mining town of Cheremkhova. Sarah was working as a controller in the branch of a meat processing plant that made combs and buttons from animal carcasses. This left her at odds with the other workers, especially after she realized they were stealing from their workplace. But then Sarah found a better job. Understand, I was a Muscovite. I was pretty well educated. She became an inspector, and not long after that, a senior inspector for the state welfare agency under the Cheremkhova Town Soviet. This put her in charge of determining the monthly subsidies for female evacuees whose husbands were at the front. Sarah would visit these women in their household to gauge the extent of their need and then provide help however she could. Most of the women came to Siberia with their children, so Sarah would do things like help mothers find spots for their kids in daycare and school. She'd also make sure the families had heat. No small issue in Siberia. She explained, Let's say there is a woman who has two or three children, but no fuel. We'd visit the head of the coal mine and make sure she got fuel. It was a coal town. It was our responsibility. It was in this capacity that Sarah was subjected to what we call sexual harassment, and she just called the act of a svolich, a word that can be translated as jerk, bastard, or worse. Having promised one evacuee with several children that she'd find fuel to heat their house, Sarah went to the coal mine where the woman worked and spoke to the mining boss about getting her some extra coal. Sarah asked me to picture the scene. Try to imagine this. I was thin as a rail, I had big eyes, and I was terribly naive, probably stupid. I went up to him and started saying, you have a woman working for you with three children. I was at their home. They're very poor. Most importantly, they're really cold. I remember his answer. No, bring them coal on a cart or a sled. Sounding very accommodating, he let her know. It won't cost you a thing. You can do anything you want. But then, this young guy, this mujik, looked her right in the eye and said, Of course I can do everything. I can even make live children. This confused me. So Sarah asked me whether I understood how men make live children. It was a weird sentence in Russian and in English. And I was still lost. Sarah, who, as we've seen, hated talking about matters she considered intimate or unseemly, didn't appreciate having to explain. How do you make live children? 
on the bed. The guy's choice of words still confused me, so Sarah repeated the live children remark and then asked me to stop the tape. I refused. She was really frustrated over my failure to understand, and so she angrily elaborated. He wanted me. I, too, didn't understand at first, even though I know the language better than you. When I realized what he was saying, I walked out. And then again. Oy, how I walked out of that office. I asked whether she said anything to him. Not a word, she answered. What could I have said? What would you have said? Was it possible to say you're a bastard with Svolich? That's the only thing I could have said. And slapped him. To make sure I understood that last remark, she smacked her hands together. You can hear it on the recording. But when the confrontation actually took place, she didn't scream at this guy and she didn't slap him. He was, after all, the head of the mine and there was no one to report him to. But the woman got the coal and Sarah didn't have to pay for the coal with sex. As a social welfare inspector, Sarah had access to documents that opened up some important doors. Her office distributed permission slips to so-called Red Army families that entitled the bearers to purchase clothing, boots, and other items. It's not like you could just buy things in Soviet stores. You needed official authorization. Sarah also had passes that gave women and their families access to state cafeterias. No one ate well but at least her clients didn't starve. It would have been really easy to abuse her position to get extra food. After all, she was often hungry. But she wasn't that kind of person. I give you my word, not once. I don't have that sin on my soul. As we saw with the comb-stealing incident, Sarah's scruples were atypical. One time, the Cheremkhova Soviet received a package of things that had been donated by the U.S., then the Soviet's wartime ally. These were valuable items in an economy that paid little attention to consumers even in peacetime. During the war, clothing and household goods were even farther from the state's production priorities. So the social welfare department heads organized a lottery for what was supposed to be some kind of fair distribution of the American donations. Staff and clients paid a nominal fee to get in the running, and then someone drew from a big drum numbered pieces of paper that corresponded to numbers pasted on secondhand coats, shoes, tchotchkes, and so on. Sarah bought in, and she came away with a pretty round pincushion, something she kept until she left Russia in 2001. But her colleagues in the Soviets somehow drew numbers for much more valuable items. And then I see that everyone who works in the town Soviet is winning really good things. A coat, a blouse, a dress. And I get a pincushion. It then came to her that the drawing had been fixed in advance. As she put it, I was the only fool. Sarah had another taste of how officials abused their power and connections after the war, when she was already back at her job in Moscow. I had absolutely nothing to wear. To buy clothes, Sarah needed some kind of official authorization. It was nearly impossible to get this. 
And so Sarah usually wore her one nice article of clothing, a long-sleeved black silk dress with lace trim around the scoop neck. She was so determined I get a sense of what it looked like that she stood up to demonstrate the cut and design, and then she had me look up two Russian words I didn't know, muara, which I learned was moire, or rippled silk, and kruzheva, which was Russian for lace. She was very proud of that dress. To her, it represented the height of fashion. It seemed so chic then. She had this stylish dress to wear because of her own form of connections. It was a hand-me-down from a relative whose journalist husband was allowed by the regime to travel abroad. Of course, this meant he had access to items that never, ever appeared on Soviet shelves, including this black silk dress. When his wife tired of wearing it, she gave it to Sarah. I didn't take that dress off for an entire year. I didn't have anything else to wear. The Institute's deputy director had recently been brought to Moscow from Leningrad. He had a girlfriend at the Institute who sported all kinds of beautiful clothes, a sign that the deputy director was sending permission slips her way. Sarah was usually timid, but every now and then someone pushed her buttons, especially when she perceived something as really unfair. One day she was walking up a staircase at their institute and she ran into this guy. He taps me on the shoulder and says, using the familiar form, you, why do you always wear that dress? That did it. Everything poured out. I said, you give permission slips to some people every month, but for all the time that I worked here, I've never gotten one. That's why I wear this one black dress. Not long after this incident, Sarah received authorization to buy a skirt. That's how we lived. Before we bring Sarah back to Moscow, I want to share a couple more stories about her experiences in Sheremkhova. Like other white-collar workers in the Soviet Union, she was expected to go on subotniks, days involving unpaid manual labor, often at collective farms in the countryside. This extra work was lauded as evidence of townspeople's ties with the Soviet peasantry and overall enthusiasm for socialism. But in reality, for most people, it was a major drag. It was volunteer work that hadn't really been volunteered for. While she was working for the Cheremkhova Soviet, Sarah took part in her share of Subotniks, one time joining other staff members a few miles outside town for strawberry picking. A truck drove them to a bright red field covered with strawberries so plentiful that Sarah filled a whole bucket in just a few hours. She brought some of the berries home for Gita to make jam. Because the amount of sugar they received for their ration cards wasn't nearly enough to sweeten and preserve the fruit, Gita boiled sugar beets with the strawberries making a jam that Sarah remembered as the tastiest she ever ate. During a less pleasant Subotnik, she had to volunteer in a coal mine for a month. Along with several co-workers, just one other woman among them, Sarah went into the mines and lugged to the surface carts that male miners working deep underground had filled up with coal. While she was there, she slept in a filthy railway wagon and had nowhere to wash. 
More time as a volunteer minor surely lay ahead if she stayed in Cheremkhova. Naturally, she and Gita were desperate to return to Moscow. But this couldn't happen unless the Red Army started winning the war. Once again, I asked Sarah what she thought about the war more generally, because it seemed tangential to all these stories about her life in evacuation. This provoked an emotional response that told me how wrong I was. Because of the war, we had to leave Moscow. Because of it, I lost my friends. Because of it, I became poverty-stricken. I was still surprised that Sarah didn't seem engaged with the bigger questions, with issues outside her own personal life. She quickly reminded me that her memory was episodic. I'd asked about her life during the war, and she was supplying me with the bits and pieces she remembered. I don't know what to say. I wanted Moscow. I wanted us to live like we did before the war, except with Papa, of course. I can't say. I don't know what I felt then. I get it. Her life had been on hold. She added, I also missed a boy I really loved, the one I went to school with. He was a pilot at the front. When I got back to Moscow, he was already married. Wait, she had a boyfriend? I realized she was talking about the young man she'd mentioned at another time, someone she'd been with in high school, who died in a plane crash after the war when he was already married with two kids. The one she teased me about when she asked me if I wanted to know whether they'd had sex. I never asked and she never told, but during this conversation, she said, That was my first love. I still remember him to this day. Oh, they broke up because of the war. She'd been pining for him the whole time, and she expected to be with him if and when the war ended. But while Sarah and her mother were in Siberia, he'd gotten married. Sarah didn't go into how this felt, but it must have been a devastating blow. It sounds like he was the one. When the war ended, Sarah would join millions of other Soviet women in facing a demographic crisis caused by the enormous number of male war deaths in the Soviet Union. Though there's debate over the numbers, it's estimated that around 27 million Soviet citizens died during the war, some 14% of the total population. Most of them were men. As of 1946, that left seven men for every 10 women. For Sarah's generation, it was very difficult for women to find husbands. This was on top of the trauma of Nazi atrocities and of injuries, losses, displacement, and homelessness. The war cost Sarah her home. While they were in Cheremkhova, their friend Mamie Kugel informed Sarah and her mother that the Krasnogorsk barracks was bombed. All that was left was a pile of rubble. Everything they had was gone. The tables, the chairs, the dishes, the samovar, the objects of their life that might still conjure up their beloved Zalia. To add insult to injury, some of their things were stolen while they were away. After the war, Gita recognized their table with its beautifully carved legs at someone's private apartment. 
and she spotted their table with a marble top for the samovar at somebody else's. But all this awaited the return to Moscow that Sarah and her mother wanted so badly. To go back, they needed official permission, not an easy process. As was so often the case, the Kugels stepped in. The Kugel family had already returned to Moscow from evacuation, and now Mamie, who was Sarah's age, went to work on their behalf. Mamie had to fill out an endless pile of forms, as well as schlep back and forth between offices in Moscow and Krasnogorsk. One time, she went the full 15 miles on foot. But Mamie got the papers signed and forwarded them to Cheremkhova. Sarah and Gita were able to quit their jobs and buy their train tickets. I never got a date for this from Sarah, but an entry in her labor booklet, the record of her lifetime of paid employment, says she was given permission to leave work on November 9, 1944. I don't know what happened to the sisters Shura, Valya, and Maria, whether they stayed a lot longer or whether they left soon after. Regardless, they too would have come home to the destroyed barracks. When Sarah and Gita headed out, they didn't have a whole lot of luggage, but they did bring a jar of clarified butter, along with a huge bag that once held a feather bed, but was now full of potatoes they harvested in autumn 1944 from their plot of land. A local factory dehydrated them, and Sarah and Gita expected to eat those dried potatoes with the butter during what they imagined would be a very long train trip back to Moscow. They expected a lengthy trip, but they didn't expect what confronted them at the train station. Getting on the train in Cheremkova was horrible. Our tickets said wagon number so-and-so, places number so-and-so. But when we got to the wagon, the attendant blocked the door and said, I won't let you in. My wagon is over full. He sent us to another wagon. So with all our things, with that bag of potatoes, we went to another wagon. But the attendant there wouldn't let us in because our tickets were for the other wagon. This was messed up. The train was about to leave. Imagine the nightmare. Sarah and Gita rushed back to the first wagon, but the attendant still wouldn't let them board. Gita was arguing with him when someone came to their rescue and handed the guy some money. That was the first time in my life there was a bribe paid on my behalf. They thanked their benefactor and boarded the train, only to find that their wagon had plenty of available spaces. This reminded me of the signs posted on the front doors of Leningrad restaurants in the 1980s, telling would-be customers that there were no tables available. But the restaurants were never full. In fact, they were always empty. How did I know? Because my fellow capitalist foreigners and I figured out pretty quickly that if we pretended we couldn't read the Russian sign, we could get fed. We'd walk in, take a seat, play dumb, and ask in English for menus. It worked every time. If you're wondering why restaurants would turn away business, the best answer is an old Soviet joke with a punchline. They pretend to pay us, and we pretend to work. It was way easier for the restaurant staff to discourage customers and steal the food for themselves. But back to Sarah. In contrast to the month it took to get out to Siberia, it only took three or four days to get home. They didn't really have a home, but they were, as always, welcome at the Kugel's apartment. Gita went back to work at her clinic, 
and eventually she and Sarah moved into a vacant room in a stone house alongside Geech's medical clinic in Krasnogorsk. Sarah described this place for me. It had water, heat, and a toilet that you love so much. That situation was temporary until Gita's Institute found them a new place to live. It was in another Krasnogorsk barracks that had the two of them in one small room, sharing a common kitchen with the other residents. Gita, ever the mama, did the cooking, and like their former servant Dunya, she rejected the shared kitchen in favor of the kerosene stove they kept on a small table in their room. Sarah slept on a folding bed. The toilet? Like the place they lived before the war, it was outside. As for Sarah's co-workers from the Seismology Institute, they returned from Tashkent, Uzbekistan in December of 1944. Sarah's mentor, Natalia Agapovna Linden, got Sarah her old job back in the beginning of 1945. I was either a lab assistant or more likely a senior lab assistant. The labor booklet documents that she was rehired as a senior lab assistant as of February 20th, 1945. The war was still going on, but we had the sense that we were going to be victorious. She vividly remembered the joyous celebration in honor of the Soviet victory in the war. She lit up when she told me about the May 9th, 1945 parade in Moscow. The date was as ingrained in her memory as July 4th is in ours. Just like we refer to the 4th, she called it the 9th, presuming I know what she was talking about. Oi, Lori, the feeling of joy. I can't begin to describe this. Sarah and her mother spent the night before the parade at the Kugel's apartment, and then they went with Mamie and her older brother Rafa to Red Square. Rafa hoisted Sarah on his shoulders to keep her safe in the huge crowd. The people, what can I say? People who didn't know each other hugged and kissed and cried and laughed, danced and kissed the soldiers. Several women were just weeping. It's impossible to describe what a happy day it was. They'd won the war. Help from the United States late in coming, barely registered in the Soviet population's sense of the victory. The Soviet Union lost 27 million people, but it defeated Nazi Germany and liberated Europe. To many in and outside the USSR, this justified every horror Stalin had inflicted on his people. Everything seemed to be on the up and up, but Stalin's suspicions would again hold sway. The USSR had won the war, but the economy was a mess. Some 25 million people were homeless. Around 1,700 cities and 70,000 villages had been hurt or totally destroyed. Stalin's allies, the U.S. and Britain, were making moves that made him really nervous. Plus, we had a scary new weapon, the atom bomb. Not long after World War II ended, the Cold War began. Stalin initiated a clampdown that reflected his fear of threats, real and imagined, against the USSR's position and his own power. A cultural backlash started even before the war's end. Arrests for perceived subversion increased, one of which involved Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
who would become known as one of the Soviet Union's greatest dissident writers. The secret police also came for Gita's great-nephew, the grandson of the former fish merchant Lazar Belenkov. 22-year-old Soviet press correspondent Arkady Belenkov was sent to a prison camp in 1944 on the charge of writing anti-Soviet literature. Arkady was given a death sentence, but two prominent authors went to bat for him and the sentence was commuted. He'd spent 12 years in the gulag, and when he was freed in an amnesty after Stalin's death, his health had already been ruined. I'm mentioning this because Sarah married his father just three years after Arkady died. Not long after Golda Meir, representing the brand new state of Israel in 1948, visited the Soviet Union and received an ecstatic welcome from Soviet Jews, Stalin began a campaign against them, especially against writers and intellectuals of Jewish origin. To the regime, Jews' enthusiasm for Israel made their loyalty to their socialist motherland seem highly questionable. Vilified as bourgeois Zionists and ruthless cosmopolitans, Jews became the target of outlandish accusations, like how they spied for the Nazis during the war. In a reprise of the terror of the late 1930s, Jews were arrested, tortured, and murdered at the hands of the secret police. Rumors abounded about an imminent mass purge, especially after the press publicized what it claimed was a plot by Jewish doctors to kill the Soviet leadership. It's no wonder Sarah and Gita were terrified. For me, the story of the Jews began at the time of the doctor's plot. Sarah Century is created, written, and produced by Laurie Bernstein. Robert A. Emmons Jr. assistant produced, recorded, sound designed, edited, and mixed the episodes, with assistant editing and mixing by Anthony Diaz, and additional help by Maggie Montalto at Rutgers University Camden. The series opening music is Russian Dance by Yer Yona, and the ending credits track is The Situationists by the FDEP Beat. Additional music for our series is by Pottington Bear and others, and is sourced from the Free Music Archive using Creative Commons licensing. Visit our website for each episode's full music credits. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and rate Sarah Century on iTunes. You can get more information and the full episode's credits about this and other episodes at sarahcentury.blogs.ruckers.edu. Our website, created by Kate Blair at Rutgers Camden's Office of Web, New Media, and Design, contains supplemental material like photos, artifacts, letters written by Sarah and others, and a family tree. Because the writing of history is an ongoing enterprise, you can also find updates and corrections as part of our ongoing quest to document Sarah's story. Special thanks to Julia Zavatsky, who brings us the beautiful voice of Sarah. With just a few exceptions, Everything Julia says in the podcast is a direct quote from taped interviews or letters. Thanks also to support from the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers University Camden and to the Rutgers Camden Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. 
This podcast would not be possible without Bob Weinberg, cousin to Sarah and husband to Laurie. Sarah Century is dedicated to Sarah Zalevna Mebel, survivor extraordinaire to whose life we tried to do justice. <laughs>